Well, good morning again. I want to read to you a little snippet of a headline I came across. It actually, I came across it recently, but it dates back to 2017. It's from a CNN story. I'm not making up the headline. Doctors find 27 contact lens in woman's eye. Let me read you some details. A sick, I know. What? A 67-year-old woman scheduled for routine cataract surgery in November thought it was just dry eye, an old age causing her discomfort, she told her surgeons. But what doctors at Sola Hill Hospital in the UK found to be the real cause of her discomfort was much more concerning. 27 contact lenses stuck in the woman's right eye as a blue mass. Rupal Marjaria, a specialist trainee in ophthalmology and author of this paper where all this is being reported, said the woman hadn't complained about any visual trouble before the operation. Richard uh, Crombie, a consultant anesthetist at the hospital, was beginning to numb her eye for surgery when he found the first cluster of contacts. The woman had been wearing monthly, contact disposa monthly disposable contact lenses for 35 years. It's unclear how long they had been gathering in her eye. Sometimes, she told the surgeons, when she would try to remove a contact from her eye, she couldn't find it. She just figured she dropped it somewhere, Morjaria explained, and it was actually getting stuck in her eye with the others. Well, this raises some questions, at least to me. Pardon the expression, pardon the pun, but how could she be so blind to this? How could she not see why she could not see? I mean, this is a shocking lack of self-awareness and an inability to understand her situation. Which brings us to Israel and Judges and our study here for this morning. So uh, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 20. You, those of you who've been in this study, this teaching series for some time, know we've, well, we've been in it for some time. And we're finally right now towards the end, what we could call the epilogue of the book of Judges. Not quite at the end. We've got one more week for that. Uh, verse, uh, chapters 17 through 21 are the last section of the book, the epilogue. Uh, it's, it's kind of this, th sets the theme for everything that you've been reading up through chapters 1 through 16. Uh, judges, those of you who don't know, you ought to know, uh, this is a period in Israel's history that kind of sits between the time of, of Moses and, the, and Joshua and the settling, the conquest of the land, and then David and Solomon and the rest of the kings to follow, and the monarchy. This judges sits right in there, and it is a, it's an historical period. It's a messy period. We can learn a whole lot about ourselves and, more importantly, about God himself uh, in this, in this record that we have. So Judges 20, verses 1 to, hang on, 48. It's a lot. It's a lot. So let me give you some, some, uh, a, a roadmap, some, some uh, markers, I guess, as we go through this, all right? So verses 1 to 11, what you're going to see here, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, the unity of Israel. It ain't really, but we'll call it that. Verses 1 through 11, the unity of Israel. Verses 12 through 17, you have the tribe of Benjamin and their response to the rest of the nation of Israel and what ought to be happening. That's verses 12 through 17. Then verses 18 on through the rest of the chapter is this account of this battle, okay? 
And the first part of that, 18 through 25, this is spoiler, Benjamin appears to have the upper hand. They're winning. And then uh, the rest, verses 29 to 48, Israel takes control. Now, there's actually two parts even in that, uh, verses 29 to 48. You have the first part, I think it's 29 to, what is that, 38. Um, That's basically the big overview of the battle where Israel's winning, that part of it. And then the rest of it, um, 36 and following, 20, yeah, something like that, 36 and following, is kind of a recap, a special look at a, a, a honing in Zone, uh, looking in particular at one aspect of how it was that Israel came to win the battle against the tribe of Benjamin. And when you're thinking about it, wait, why is Israel fighting the tribe of Benjamin? Glad you asked. We're about to get into that. Here we go. Judges chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, this is all about going back to the last chapter. I'll talk about that as we go. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gebeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gebeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gebeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people. And when they come out, they may repay Gebeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that, you, that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of all their brothers, the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gebeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 25,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gebeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. All right, now begins the account of the battle. The people of Israel arose and went to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gebeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gebeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gebeah and destroyed on that day 
22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people, of pe- the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gebeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came up to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go, go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. Okay, now the things shift and Israel gets the upper hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gebeah and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gebeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gebeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Mare Geba. And there were against Gebeah 10,000 chosen men of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword, and the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now, the rest is a recap of a portion of the battle. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gebeah. And the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gebeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up and smoked to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as, op- as, far as opposite Gebeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and there were, they were pursued hard to Gidam, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor, 
But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Well, we need to pray, so let's do that now. Jesus, thank you for this account. There's obviously a lot of detail here, so we can see it certainly is meant to be understood as history. These things really happen. These people really live. Um, and you are listening. You are observing. You are a part of this in some way. We are meant to learn from these things in some way. And we are asking now here at this moment that you would do that. Help us learn. But not just in the sense of taking facts into the mind, but taking deep things into the heart. Jesus, would you change us, make us into the people that you made us, saved us to be. We pray in your name. Amen. Unfolding events can reveal, can reveal otherwise hidden realities. Unfolding events can reveal otherwise hidden realities. Now, this may seem too soon, but I'm going to say it anyway. Think back to March the 3rd. It was a Friday. March the 3rd of this year. You remember that? Gale force winds tore through this area, causing power outages everywhere, damage to roofs and siding and buildings all over the, air, the town. An untold number, innumerable it would seem, numbers of trees felled. Oh, one in particular. Remember too soon? One big majestic oak that used to sit out there on that lawn that uh, some, was estimated at some 350 years old, that, that had a seeming sense of permanence about it, not just to us in this church, but to the whole community. Everyone thought, this thing's never going anywhere. And then this storm comes, and the rot within it was exposed. Done. Sometimes unfolding events can reveal otherwise otherwise hidden realities. Back to Israel. That's what you see going on here. Unfolding events like a storm revealing otherwise up to that time hidden realities. I said it was, we were, I was beginning the reading that uh, chapters 17 through 21 are kind of a, a unit really. And when you look at chapter 17, at the end of chapter 21, you see bookends. And in between the bookends, you see repetition of some phrasing that's within the bookends. So let me just read you chapter 17, verse 6, because it sets the tone for everything that happens, and including what we read from chapter 20. This is it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what we just read is bearing that out, okay? So here, the, the assertion is, just a factual assertion, there was, in those days, there was no king. There was no king. So that's the assertion. Analysis, they needed one. Okay? Factual statement, there is no king. Analysis, they needed one. Not, not just a king to rule and defend, but a king to save and secure. And, and, and not just a king to deal with the issues, the problems, the enemies out there, 
on the boundaries. They could be seen. But the enemy's closer in, on the inside, in here, within. They needed, we need a king like that. Because what we're seeing here in Genesis, sorry, not Genesis, Judges chapter 20, is great need exposed. Great need exposed such that they, we need such a king. The Lord is our king. And what we're seeing here exposed, the veneer stripped away, is our need for a king, our need for his rescue from sin. Our need for a king, our need for his rescue from sin, from the corrupting effects of sin, uh, from the, all of its, uh, the, the, the rampant effects of our idolatry and our false worship and our lesser gods and just the things that we're prone to chase after, rescue from all of that. He is the king, and we desperately need rescue, rescue, his rescue from sin. That's what we're seeing exposed, revealed here in this passage. Now, you may be wondering, well, okay, how so? In what ways are you saying that this is showing, that this is saying that we need rescue from sin? Three points. It's right in the outline if you've got the bulletin there in front of you. These three things that are coming up that show us our desperate need for this king. So here you go. One, the licentiousness of this town, Gebeah. We'll get to that as we go. The licentiousness of this town. Secondly, the callousness of this Levite. And thirdly, the arrogance of the tribe. Okay, multi-syllable words, I know. Uh, the licentiousness of uh, the town, the callousness of the Levite, the arrogance of the tribe. Well, let's go. Here we go. The licentiousness of the town. Think, of, think with me what we're seeing here, what we've read of last week in chapter 19, what we're seeing again here in chapter 20, how far they had fallen, this town, this town of Gebeah. This is a town of Israel for Pete's sake. Uh, they were as a town of Israel, as part of Israel, is meant that that meant that they were called to be. They were called out from the nations to be a light for the nations. They're called to be uh, salt, light, city on a hill. Right? That's what it meant to be a part of Israel. An open invitation to all the neighbors: come see what it means to live and follow in accordance with the ways of the living God. They are a town of Israel, but they're, they are like a town of Sodom. There are many parallels, interestingly enough, between what we see in Judges 19 last week and Genesis 19 with, if you go back and read about the account of Lot and the angelic visitors that he was entertaining and what took place in, in the city of Sodom. Go back and read that this afternoon if you want to. But the point being that what you see here is the salt is corrupted, the light has grown dim, I mean, they utter collapse, compromise of the mission. What is this revealing to us? They have embraced the gods of the peoples around them. They have fallen down, bent the knee. Uh, we've talked about this, seen this umpteen number of times in the course of this series. This is an agrarian society, which means they are completely reliant upon the crops. So an agrarian society, uh, it's a... Um, sexualized religion, the idea being that, you know, the way you worship with the temple prostitutes is meant to bring about fruit and uh, cro abundant crops and all of this, and it was inter interrelated, all of that at the time. It was an uh, agrarian society and a sexualized religion, 
And Israel has assimilated into it. They have assimilated into it. It's, it's not in any way the way Paul writes in the New Testament. And it, as though they, they were uh, in the world but not of the world. Oh, no, 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 no. They're right on in and of. In and of. Again, Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's driving this? What's going on here? Well, if you go back and read in Judges chapter 19, and you think of just the, the horror, the corruption, the debauchery that's taking place there as those men come banging on that door and they want to come in and they want to know the man, that Levite who was visiting, and, and uh, then they end up throwing the, uh, the, the man's uh, concubine out there for them to do with her as they see fit. What, what's going on there? What is it that they know? What is it that they want? What's driving this craziness, this insanity? Two things. Stay with me. One, when you think in terms of the, the, the nature of the sin, partly you have to say is partly what they want is intimacy. That's the nature of sexual sin, the desire for intimacy, to know and to be known. As uh, Bruce Marshall wrote in his wonderful book from 1945, it's a, it's a work of fiction, the, the World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. This is the great line from the book. When a young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Now, that may sound scandalous. That may sound heretical to you, but it's true. The young man who's ringing the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Intimacy, to know and to be known. But, oh my goodness, this is hardly the way to, to, to know and to be known. God, God is the one that we are looking for. He is the one. He, he wants to, to know us and to be known by us to such a degree as sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us that we would be one with him. That's the way to know, but that's hardly the way that we see here. What else is driving us? It's not just the, this uh, horrific desire for, uh, the good desire for intimacy gone horrifically wrong, but also you'd have to say in terms of these men who want that, also these, uh, but weak men, weak men who want power and control when you think in terms of the nature of that sin. But here again, we have to say that where, is, where just as the intimacy we long for is to be found ultimately in the Lord, so too is power and control to be found in relationship with, because he is the one in the power. He is the one with the control. He is the one that we are to be looking to and trusting in, in all of our circumstances and everything that we encounter and struggle with. We are to be looking to him, not trying to take things into our own hands. He is the king. He is the king. We must be turning to him, looking to him in rescue from such sin. So we see the licentiousness of this town. These good desires gone sideways, gone horrifically wrong. It takes us to the next thing, the callousness of the Levite. This guy, this, this man that we see, this is not just chapter 19. He appears in chapters 19 and 20, so we see a, quite a bit of him in the beginning. Uh, the narrator gives us, uh, paints a picture of a series of events unfolding, some things that not just that what he does, but what he says. That's worth, both of which are worth paying attention. So thinking back to last chapter, what did he do? What did he, he do? Well, he, as I said earlier, he thrusts this poor woman outside the door uh, in just a horrifically cowardly fashion 
there in, in that night into that town square. The next morning, uh, can I say engages with her in such a flippant fashion regarding, you know, now she's, she's dead, doesn't seem to have any care for that whatsoever. And in the course of that, mutilates, cuts up her body, mutilates, sends the parts around to the different tribes within Israel. Well, that's what he does. It's, it's beyond horror when you think in terms of what's transpired here. What does he say? As he reflects back on that, what is the way he tells the tale? This is interesting to note. You see this in chapter 20, verses 3 and 7. Note what he emphasizes and note what he just eliminates, doesn't even mention. Verses 3 through 7. Um, the people of Israel said, tell us how did this evil happen? The Levites, so here's his testimony. Uh, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gebeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gebeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, Give your advice and counsel here. Notice how he does two things. He's exaggerating the danger that he was actually in, and he completely ignores the fact that what happened to her was completely his fault. It's, it's, it's just shocking what this guy does here. Now, what does this reveal? What does this reveal of, of him? For starters, he is, I said this earlier, he's cowardly, he's calloused. Will touched on this last week. The callousness of this man's heart, the way he regarded this woman, not as a person, but as property, to do with or not as he pleased or not, such that when, the, when morning light came and she's lying there dead on the threshold, he felt his, as though an object, property, has been stolen for, from him. Property, not he, but it, in his mind, has been irretrievably damaged, and that's why he's angry. It has nothing to do with his anger about his, this woman that is dear to his heart and a person made in the image of God being treated this way. It's nothing. It's completely about you have done to my property this way, and that is why he calls this assembly. The callousness is just shocking. And then the deceit. I alluded to this already in his words. The deceit, the manipulation of this group of people that he calls forth. He's so clearly desperate to try and get the eyes off of himself and get the spotlight completely on, yes, obviously they were guilty in the town of Gebeah, but he's shifting it completely off of himself lest anybody call him to account for what he did. Callousness, deceitfulness. Again, Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, including the callousness and deceitfulness that we see here. That's the way sin works. There's always a reason. As insane as it is, there's always a reason. There's always a deeper desire, a felt need, a demand within that's driving you to do or say or not do or say the things that 
the, the sin that's being committed. So just think with me in terms of cheating in school in a classroom. Uh, I'm sure it's far more sophisticated in this day than it was in mine. You know, where you just, you know, write on your hand or stick a piece of paper under your watch band or whatever. I'm sure now it's related to Bluetooth in some way. But, you know, you think in terms of why, why do, why do that? Then or now, why, why, why do that thing that, that in and of itself is wrong at the surface, cheating, but why do that thing? Here's, here's, here's why. Because you weren't ready for the test. You weren't ready for the test. You weren't prepared. You don't want to be, you don't want to do poorly. You're under pressure, either from your parents or wh- whatever it is. And so you're going to then do this. It's not just that you cheated, but it was, there were desires that were driving that thing, this this sin beneath the sin, beneath that sin. Well, that's the way all sin works, this way it, the desires that are driving it, the demands that are driving it, the felt needs that are driving it. So how, how, what then are we seeing here with this Levite, and how might we, dare I say, how might we be like him in the workings of our own hearts? Now, think about the hateful things that you that I, that we have done or said to or about one another at any time or, or someone else. What did that reveal about your heart? It's not just the thing you did, but what did it reveal about your heart and ultimately what you believe about who God is that would make you want to do that thing? Or the truth you didn't tell and the lie that you did the way you edited the story that you recounted of the events that you were integrally involved in. Okay, you got the deceit, the lie that's right there, clear, wrong, but why'd you do it? The thing beneath the surface, what's, the, what's going on there? That's the way it works for all of us. And in all of that, what we're seeing here again and again through all the scriptures and this, what Judges is pointing us towards, this need for this greater king, to come is that we can turn to this king. We can trust this king. We don't have to do these things. We can look to him. We can lean into him. And he will save us from such depravity, save us from such insanity, save us from the enthraldom, the enslavement to our sin. All right, we've got the licentiousness of the town, the callousness of the Levite, and lastly, the arrogance of the tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And again, this is maddening what we see going on here. Terrible what we see going on here. Verses 12 through 14 of uh, Judges 12, uh, 20. rather. The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gebeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. This is insane. This is sin building upon sin. The corruption is growing and spreading. Um, the obvious choice before them goes fool- so foolishly ignored. Uh, they can hold out. For, they, they know they can hold out for a while, and they do. They do. We see it very clearly. I mean, yes, they do. First couple of days, they're, they're on top, but they can't win. They have to know that. The inevitable bloodshed 
And yet, and yet, of course, they, they decide we're going to stand our ground. Stand our ground. They close ranks. They close ranks because they're closing their eyes. They're closing their eyes to any scent of, of uh, common decency or transcendent morality. They're, they're, they're closing their eyes, closing ranks, saying, no, 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 no. No outsiders are going to tell us what to do. They close their eyes, they close their ranks, and justice is denied. And thousands die. What's being revealed in this? At least a couple of things in terms of heart-level stuff. One, a crass disdain for unity, which is clearly the Lord's desire for his people. A crass disdain for unity. Now, you see a bit of unity going on here. Obviously, the tribe of Benjamin's united. They're united against the other tribes. Oh, great. Then you've got the rest of the tribes, and they're kind of united too, but there's a note of tragedy in that. I mean, even the the phrasing in in their prayers before God is a hearkening back to Judges 1 when things are kind of getting off to a good start, but here it's the people united in what? Against their people. It's the people united against their people. What kind of unity is that? It's none at all, ultimately. And Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is stoking this fire. So there's this crass disdain for unity. Their hearts, in the course of this, their hearts' true priority being revealed, and that's this. Ties of blood and community trumping everything else. Ties of blood and community trumping everything else, meaning we don't care what it takes. We don't care what we have to sacrifice. We don't care what we have to do. We don't care what God's ultimately, not saying this, they would never say it, but in terms of their actions, we don't care what God's law, what his commands, his priorities would indicate. Our people is our God. Our people, our tribe, our family, our community is our God. So that's why they're closing ranks. And they'll sacrifice anything for that God, and they do. And it's a tragic result. Again, Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now think with me. I know this is touching some nerves, but think with me. Just I'm going to pull back just for a second here. Think about your posture towards your favorite sports team. Okay? College professional, and whatever sport it is. Just think about your posture towards your sports team. And now, so let me just paint this scenario for you. A scandal has broken loose. You know, Sports Illustrated and ESPN is all over the, everything. Some scandal, it's related to a player, it's related to a coach, and everyone else in the world is calling it out. Except you. And the fans of that team. You can't call it out. You can't join in the crowd. You won't. Why? Because it's your team. It's your team. You think of how many of our divisions today are driven by a dynamic like that. My people, my tribe, my family over all else my party 
my denomination, my race, my heritage, over all else. It's where I find my identity. You may not realize it, but it's where you... We, we're, it's like gang warfare in many ways, staking out our turf. What's the answer? Well, you start with this, to be thankful for the good things and all those things. No doubt there's much to be found. No doubt there's much to be good to be found in those things that we ought to be thankful and grateful to the Lord for. But not our identity. Not our identity. Christian, your people, your tribe, your family is the church. Ultimately, the only blood tie that matters is his. He is king. He is king. It is to him we must look. Upon him we must learn and lean. And he alone can rescue us from these things. I'll read you an account. I can't, another, it's not a CNN news story, it's something else. Uh, this one's actually not 2017, it's 2012. Uh, some events that took place on a climb to Mount Everest in 2012. 24-year-old uh, Israeli climber Nadav Ben Yehuda was 300 meters from the summit of Mount Everest. He gave up his dream that day to conquering the planet's highest peak in order to save an injured Turkish climber. Ben Yehuda described the incident this way, I passed two fresh corpses. I know they were fresh because they were the bodies of people on the same ropes along which I climbed. I realized they were, they were dying. They were not having the strength to move. People, did, they didn't crawl away, but buckled up, fell into a coma, and died. Those who continued to get this, those who continued to move stepped over them. When I saw him, this is the guy that... Uh, I recognized him. It was Aiden Ernak of Turkey. We met him in, down in the camp. He was unconscious, had no gloves, no oxygen, no crampons. His helmet was off. He was waiting for the end. Other climbers walked past him without lifting a finger, but I knew that if I passed by, he would surely die. I knew I, should, I would have to at least try to save him. Aiden and I started the descent. It lasted nine hours. It was very difficult to carry him because he was heavy. From time to time, he regained consciousness, but then went out again. When he came in, he screamed in pain, and this made our descent even more difficult. Very slowly, we descended, but at some point, my oxygen mask broke. A little while later, we met a climber from Malaysia who was also on his last legs. It became clear that it was completely impossible to go further. I yelled at other climbers that I met that were going up and demanded some oxygen for the two wounded. Some responded. The reporter goes on to say, they reached the camp, were evacuated by helicopter to Kathmandu, were hospitalized. Everyone got frostbite. Ben Yehuda suffered severe frostbite on his fingers as he was forced to take off his gloves during the rescue operation. His last words on this, I was faced with a choice to be the youngest Israeli to climb Everest, which would be great for my career, or to try to take a climber off the mountain. 
I chose the second option and I managed to do it. Thanks to everyone who helped me in preparation and taught me, which gave me enough strength to go down the mountain myself and pull down the one in need of help. Okay, here's a very simple observation. And then two questions. Simple observation is this. Everyone on that trail going up saw the climbers that were laying down. Everyone going up that trail saw the climbers that had fallen. Now, what do we make of the two different responses? Those who kept going and then Ben Yehuda. Those who kept going, uh, what do we see in that? Human depravity. Right? I mean, a crass, callousness, disregard for the value of, of human life and a demonstration, a real live demonstration of the dynamics of idolatry of a God that you will do anything, anything to serve. In this case, the God of reaching the summit at the cost of whatever else it takes. And in that, we see something of ourselves and the danger we are always in to the degree that we give ourselves to, to any, any lesser God than Jesus in any way at all. Okay, thinking about those who kept going. Now, what about, just as an illustration, Nadav ben Yehuda? He gave up the ascent. He grabbed hold of this man and proceeded to go down. And in so, he's you see two other things demonstrated. One, our need. We are the guy that needed to be picked up and carried down because of our desperate plight and our sin. That's us. Every one of us in desperate need of being picked up and carried down lest we perish. Ben Yehuda, of course, is an illustration, a living demonstration of what Jesus has done for us in making the descent, the ultimate descent. But in this case, he did not live to climb another day because he died in that rescue, raised later, but died in our place. Friends, this is a God worth praising. This is a Savior worth trusting. This is a King worth serving. And He is the only one that can set us free from the idols of our hearts and their terrifying grip upon our lives. Can we pray? Jesus, would you please help us to see ourselves in that town? Would you help us to see ourselves in that Levite? Would you help us to see ourselves in that tribe? Oh, Lord, we hear the words of warning of the Apostle John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We are the little children in our inordinate loves and our counterfeit gods and our living, breathing idols, the deep-rootedness and the ugly fruit. Jesus, these things cause us to do terrible things, bring great wreckage into our lives and the lives of those around us, and we are so enslaved, ensnared. Help us to see, and would you set us free? We are, in the words of John Newton, big sinners, and we need you a big savior. Thank you. Thank you that 
we can ask these things, plead these things, cry these things, and know that you hear us all the time. We pray this in your name. Amen.